Welcome to the Aftershock podcast. We chat about cancer, the word you never want to hear. Life is very short and, you know, we're here one day, gone the next. So I want to use the short amount of time that we have to actually assist another human being the best way that's possible. The Aftershock podcast speaks to a variety of people that have experienced the ripple effect of a cancer diagnosis. Join us as we explore stories of lost loved ones and speak to those who have had lived experience with the disease. I'm Susie Neat, and this is the Aftershock Podcast. After her father was killed in a civilian bomb attack when she was 12, Mastura and her family fled Afghanistan for Australia. Without speaking a word of English or being able to communicate, she began high school in a completely foreign environment. In this episode of the Aftershock Podcast, we speak to Mastura Munif, neurologist and cancer researcher. Through her grandfather, she learnt from an early age the value of education. With the driving force of growing up in a war-torn environment, Mastura did everything she could to enter a career of helping people. Thank you, Suze, for the invitation. It's, uh, thank you for the opportunity. My name is Mastura Monif. Um, I'm a clinician researcher. I work as a neurologist um, as well as a, a scientist uh, currently. Um, so in regards to my background, I'm originally from Afghanistan um, and I was I was born there and but I've done my high school and my university here in Melbourne. So I left there at the age of 12. Wow. And excuse my ignorance, what did that look like? leaving Afghanistan? Um, it, it, it was, um, what did it look like? It wasn't uh, it wasn't a good sight, to be honest. It wasn't, um, it was very hard to process for a 12-year-old. It was very hard to understand and, you know, comprehend what was happening to myself, to the rest of my family, to my friends, you know, my neighbours. And I think the, the hardest part was the uncertainty because I had, you know, none of us, we had no idea what was you know, what was ahead. And we had no idea, will we ever come back? And will we ever see my grandparents? Will we ever see my friends? You know, will we ever see the rest of our family? So that was, you know, um, it was a lot to, to, to deal with, you know, for a 12 year old. Oh, absolutely. How did your, um, how did your parents communicate with you and tell you what was going on and, and why you were leaving? Um, there was, so there was no time to really communicate. Uh, it was basically, you know, we, it was like an urgent situation. There was time to, you know, it was, um, the war was basically, um, it had, you know, as, as long as I remember, even as a, as a child, you know, <laughs> there, was, there was war all, all surrounding us, but it, it escalated and it became closer and closer to where we lived. So there was no time to communicate. And essentially, um, one night my mom told myself and my um, younger brother and sister that um, we were leaving. And then um, the next morning at 4 a.m., um, uh, we left. We basically, my grandpa accompanied us for half of that journey, but then, yeah, we left the country. And so there was nothing, no, no, no time to actually, you know, ask questions. You know, of course, it was very, distra- it was very um, distressing kind of experience for everybody because I didn't know what was going to happen to my grandma. I didn't know what was going to happen to my auntie, my friends, you know, but, you know, it was just, um, it was, a, um, it was an experience that, you know, it's kind of hard to, um, hard to process it as a child, even as an adult. Yeah, of course. And it's, it's extremely hard living in Australia to even imagine or try and comprehend what that would have been like. 
So how did that, um, you're 12 years old, you're getting probably to the near of primary school um, and you just, you up and leave. How did that disrupt your schooling? So my school had uh, closed um, because with escalation of war, um, the like you know at that time it was it was quite dangerous to go to school anyway so my school had already closed so I was just um, trying to do the best that I can at home so I had some of my you know books that I was just trying to keep up with um, and you know at that even as as a child you know it's it's it was quite a, a worrying experience because you don't know what's going to happen to you and how many more months or how many more years uh, you know, will 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 go by, and you know you haven't had your formal schooling. So I was just trying to keep up with it um, the best that I can, but it wasn't any formal education or anything like that. And I and I think you know I was fortunate because you know my my family and especially my grandpa, he was so into education and and just you know kind of instilling that that. Um, that value of education in us. So even even though the schools were closed, we were always trying to do to do the best that we can at home to at least finish the books that you know that I had at home to you know kind of um, at least feel feel good within myself that I've done something from an education perspective and that I wasn't um, you know that I was still learning despite the circumstances. Yeah, that's really incredible, and and what a value that was able to be seeded out throughout your family. At what point in your schooling or what age did you start to take an interest in medicine? So with medicine, I've always wanted to do to become a doctor, even, you know, like some of my earliest memories, you know, as long as I remember, I've always wanted to be a doctor. And this goes back in, in, in Afghanistan. I used to pretend that, um, you know, that I was I was a doctor and I had this pretend uh, like bag of medicine that I would walk, you know, kind of go along the house asking everyone if they if they needed help from the doctor. And and my grandpa used to pretend that he'd, he'd hurt his arm, and so therefore, you know, I was the you know I was the doctor, and I was going to fix it. So it was it went back as long as I could remember. But then I think at that point it was more of a an interest. It wasn't anything you know deep seated or anything like that. But then with with the escalation of war and seeing you know what happened and just the the suffering and just the you know the horrendous circumstances. You know, like the impact of war on 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 humanity and human lives. I think that's when it actually became reality, and that for me to actually live life, because um, there was a time when I couldn't even I couldn't even process going. Um, I couldn't see the future. I couldn't see the past. I couldn't. There was like it was like time had um, stopped, and and for me to actually you know, to actually take an, another step, to actually live life, um, I think medicine became an escape mechanism. So I, I think it just, it, to be honest with you, it probably gave me an avenue to um, to keep going, as, you know, to have a goal, to have a some, like a purpose or a calling in life. And then to do that, you know, because I was so, you know, I just so wanted to be a doctor to, to make a, you know, to, to do the best that I can to alleviate suffering, even as a kid, I, I think it just became an avenue for me to a survival uh, technique, basically. And that's how I learned to live and, and continue on. Yeah, like an outlet. Um, what, what was it like being at school where you've got, you're interested in medicine and you've got these deep motivations because you're literally coming from a country of war and I I'm assuming here so you can correct me if I'm wrong but you're probably surrounded by a lot of Melbourneian students who have no idea what that looks like which is a really great position to be in but 
did you find it difficult sort of having that background and and seeing what you'd already seen uh, in your short life and being around students who had or people who had no who have no idea what that was like um, I, I think it was you know because um, to be fair I guess we're all kind of you know a product of our circumstances you know in some ways going to that school and the fact that it was a bit rough maybe it was good for me because it it, it kind of um, you know, it, it, I had to survive again, you know, I had to kind of live in this country now, things have changed, I'm not in Afghanistan, there's no war, there's no rockets or there's no bombs, but there's a different, you know, um, I have to learn how to, to survive in a different manner. So I think from that point of view, it was tough, but at school, um, I mean, to be honest, I mean, because I, I couldn't communicate, I couldn't even tell people what had happened, and uh, it was hard for me to even say, um, you know, like where I came from or because I was also ashamed, you know, because as a kid, you, you, you put so much emphasis on uh, on um, the perception of others and how, you know, people, um, how they view you. So you kind of have, you know, your sense of your self-esteem is dependent on how someone else sees you. So I think, you know, I was just, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't even know how to say, look, I'm from Afghanistan or this is what's happened. Um, so, and, and I couldn't even communicate that. Um, but they were, you know, they were um, kids in that school that, um, you know, I think they would have, irrespective of my, my background, they would have like, accepted me as I am. And there was also a number of teachers who were actually quite helpful and, and accommodating. Um, but, you know, just I think sometimes you just need time to to learn and time to kind of adjust to a new life. And, and then, you know, but how do you forget the past, you know, when, it took time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's it's pretty amazing, you know, you, you were using it as a, as a driving force to be able to, to help others. Um, so how did you, after high school, um, did you get into medicine straight away? Oh, so, I, so, so in high school, I've always wanted to do, you know, like it was like I worked so hard, you know, like so hard day and night and in year eight, I used to wake up at 5 a.m. in the morning to learn about mitochondria. And, you know, like mitochondria had nothing to do with, with my actual yeah. curriculum. I would just get these science books and I would just read about it because I was so worried that I'm not going to get into medicine and what's going to happen. So I would just, I worked so hard. So, but I got into biomedical science, which was, you know, not medicine. You know, it's like a, a stepping stone to medicine. Um, but at that time, you know, it was, I, it, I was somewhat disappointed because, you know, it's like biomedical science and, um, you know, like when you, when you put your hopes and dreams into something and you work so hard to, to, to achieve that and then you miss out by a tiny zero point something mark, uh, it's like it really kind of shakes you as a, as a human being because there was like everything that I, that was humanly possible, I did do to, to get into medicine. But then I, and then it just like, you know, it was, I didn't get in. So I did biomed, but it actually, in retrospect, it worked out really well because it, it opened my eyes to, to science and to this other massive field that I didn't even know existed. And, you know, sometimes when you're so focused on one aspect of, of life or, you know, one aspect of, of learning, you ne- you kind of neglect um, what else <laughs> could be there. So I think for me, it actually worked out well because, you know, like today, I, like, you know, my work is, you know, I work as a clinician, but, but as well as a scientist. So it's actually, you know, it's really enhanced what I do, but I would never have um, encountered that or, you know, never came, you know, I would never have 
had that opportunity if if that you know kind of um the um you know sometimes a setback kind of opens up other opportunities for you so when did you um get into medicine so i did my biomedical science degree and i did honors and then i did my phd and medicine at the same time so my phd was on um so neuroinflammation so it was a neuroscience PhD and then, then I did medicine at the same time and um, so for you know a good 10 years I was at, at Melbourne University just that's that's all I did <laughs> just I had no I had no holidays really like no um, it was just constantly studying to uh, to do you know what I've always wanted to do and and it was amazing that things were actually happening and, and coming together and <laughs> yeah and so, um, did you? You were just so you sound so driven and motivated. Did the constant studying? Um, it obviously didn't burn you out. Do you, and you enjoyed it? Uh, no, because I mean, it didn't like it didn't really burn me out because it was even you know to those like during university, it was still a um, like a very like deep seated inherent drive. Like I really. Um, like I really had to do that, you know, even to this day, you know, I have to tell myself, why am I doing what I'm doing? Like, you know, like, why am I doing this research on brain cancer? Or why am I doing, why am I working in neurology? Like, I really have to, the actual um, drive and, and, you know, it has to be there. And I have to really tell myself, why is that? Is that because of, you know, is it because of prestige? Is it because of money? Is it because of my ego? What's what's the drive? But, you know, I really have to, you know, I had a lot of, you know, all those years, I had a chance to really delve into my own motivations. And I can tell you that uh, it's definitely driven by the fact that um, I've seen, you know, so much human suffering. And um, I want to kind of, I want to spend my life, uh, you know, because I do, I do, I appreciate the fact that life is very short, and you know, we're here one day, gone the next. Um, so I want to use the the you know the um, short amount of time that we have or that I have to actually do the best that I can to the best of my ability as a human being to actually um, contribute um, in, in a way that can assist another human being the best way that that's possible. Yeah. And so you currently work at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne. What's your role there? Um, so I work as a neurologist at the Alfred and I also work as a neurologist at the Royal Melbourne. And as of last year, I, I've, there's, uh, we have got a new service, the neuroimmunology service. So I lead the neuroimmunology service at the Alfred. And then my uh, science or my research role is uh, so I lead a lab at Monash Department of Neurosciences, um, and so it's a lab that focuses on a number of neurological diseases. So that's kind of my um, my scientific role. So I, I work as a, you know, most of my days, half of it is clinical work, half of it is research. And what is your research focusing on at the moment? Um, so our research focuses on a number of uh, neurological diseases. So we focus on um, uh, um, uh, glioblastoma. We're also focusing on autoimmune encephalitis and multiple sclerosis. And, and most of these diseases have a neuroinflammation, or the, as, as one of the drivers or one of the uh, one of the um, pathogenic mechanisms of disease. So that's where my background in neuroimmunology because I when I trained as a neurologist I then went on to train as a neuroimmunologist so my clinical background uh, combined with my um, my scientific background it kind of comes together nicely 
um, to, to, to delve deeply into these diseases. And did you work in other fields before you got into neurology? Uh, yes, yeah, so we all have to, all of us have to go through um, physician training. So I, I worked as a, as a in re- resident, as a registrar, um, you know, in like you know at the Royal Melbourne Hospital to basically go through our, and that involves doing multiple different types of uh, specialty work, and then we do our physician exams, and then after our physician's exam, then we pick a, a subspecialty or a specialty that then we would apply for, and mine was neurology. Mm. You mentioned glioblastoma, and that is one of the research projects the Aftershock um, helps fund um, because we know that um, the survival rates are so so awful. Can you, um, just for those listening, um, give us a bit more information as to, to why we are in such desperate need for funding for research for brain cancer? Yes, absolutely. So glioblastoma, you know, it's, it's of all the neurological diseases and of all the you know the type of patients that we see it's the one that i feel like that it's so urgent urgent in the sense that when a person is diagnosed with glioblastoma the time from diagnosis to mortality is quite short so the average life expectancy is only 12 to 18 months and that's despite the current conventional treatments and in the last 15 years there's actually been nothing really that has changed survival rates and so the actual life expectancy at, you know at five years is only five percent and so it's it's a very aggressive disease and um the way that it comes on you know a lot of the time it's quite unexpected and it it um it it really you know it it, it just changes um the, the the patient in many ways because of you know suddenly they they're given this diagnosis and and i think you know we have to do as much as we can to, to change the, the you know the prognosis of this disease because for many other cancers there's a lot that's happened in the last 15 years you know we have treatments that are you know that can change survival rates for many types of cancers like melanoma or colon cancer or um, you know other cancers but for glioblastoma we are lacking behind and I think that's one of the reasons why you know we have to be very vigilant and be as um, as um, you know as as effective as we can be to to kind of shift the paradigm the best way possible to you know move it forward why why is brain cancer so complex i mean there's a lack of funding towards research we know that um but we've we've seen some incredible campaigns over recent years that are raising a lot of money um and there's absolutely more needed over a long period of time but is there something about the brain for those not in the medical field, such as myself, um, that makes treating cancer so difficult? So with um, with funding, I think you know there's there's lots of you know like organisations like the Aftershock who are doing you know the best they, you know that you can to to raise awareness of the disease. But I think, you know, historically, maybe some of the like, you know, in terms of NHMRC, so the National Medical um, Health Organizations and historically, we didn't really have some of the, the, the grant schemes that we have recently for example only recently there's been a few schemes which are particularly targeting brain cancer we didn't have that in the past so i think that's why it's there's a lot of you know there's we have to there's a lag in terms of funding but the other reason why it's so complicated is because it's such a you know with brain cancer it's not a 
it's so complicated in the sense that some of the, like, especially with glioblastoma, some of the conventional ways of doing clinical trials, it doesn't really apply because you've got cancers that have such short time from diagnosis to mortality. You have, you know, you can't really follow individuals, you know, beyond, you know, a certain period of time. And also because you've got cancers that are infiltrating, that are, you know, in invasive to the point that normal brain structures are involved. So that complexity of, you know, how do you target this cancer? How do you deliver the medication? How do you even do surgery when the cancer is so hard to access in, in, in many circumstances? That makes it quite tricky. And I think, you know, but then again, if something is complex, do we do we just not, you know, delve into it further or do we what do we do? And I think that's why we need to actually change, uh, you know, the, act the way things have been done in the past and really go, okay, this is complex, but how do we, how do we fix this? Yeah. And of course the brain is, it's your personality, it's who you are. So, I mean, I could, I could be wrong here, but it's not as a patient, you don't really want trial and error on your brain because then you just, you have no quality of life as well. Absolutely. And the consenting is also sometimes hard because if you have a, you know, a, a, a brain cancer that affects one area of the brain, for example, that's important for judgment or planning or consenting, and, and then um, that can also make it hard because then you have to rely on the, you know, the, the person's next of kin or their uh, medical treatment decision maker. So I think sometimes that also makes it a bit tricky. And also if you have a with a lot of you know brain diseases, especially of the same with you know mental health, for example. If you can't, if the, the disease has affected your capacity to advocate for yourself, then um, that also is harder because, you know, for example, if you can't advocate for yourself because you've got significant disability or, you know, that area of the brain that's important for, um, for uh, judgment or insight or planning is affected, then that makes it hard because you have to rely on someone else to to um to do the advocacy for you um, and i think maybe that's another reason oh absolutely have there been newer drugs created to help improve quality of life for brain cancer patients uh, not necessarily so these you know we have medications that you know that are used in palliative care settings in terms of helping with um uh, helping with, for example, um, respiratory secretions or with pain. And in brain cancer, we do have, you know, a lot of people with brain cancer uh, experience seizures. So we have um, multiple different types of anti-seizure medications, but we're still, you know, we're still lacking in, in many ways in terms of um, putting quality of life as, as uh, you know, at the forefront of the diagnostic process. I think sometimes, you know, we focus on that, but only kind of in the later stages, um, we need to kind of bring that forward. So when a diagnosis is made, the emphasis is still on the quality of life as well, you know, where possible. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, because there is such a high mortality rate and there's such a lack of funding, I mean, we were talking before we started recording about, you know, your weekend and your spare time and it's, it's so many grants that you apply for. Um, that is so time consuming. And I also I have no doubt that you get knocked back a lot as well. What's the toll like on the profession and your colleagues when you are seeing, I mean, you're, you're patient facing as well. Um, I'm sure you've seen a lot of patients pass away from brain cancer and your colleagues have as well. What, how are you and your colleagues and have you seen turnover in the field because of, because of how relentless this disease is? So in terms of the impact of the disease, I think, you know, number one priority, we have to 
it's the it's the patient that's you know that's uh, you know they're affected and i think we have to make sure that always you know they they're our priority that then their family members and their caregivers because it's not you know it's not an easy thing for them for them to go through and then as a clinician when you see patients with glioblastoma the hardest part in some ways is that by the time you see them the next time there has been generally in, in i'm not obviously it varies from individual to individual but generally there's been a decline so for example if they could walk the one of the appointments by the next appointment they may have you know their ability to ambulate um may have deteriorated or you know they may have had ad other signs and other symptoms and then at times you know you you book an appointment and your patient has unfortunately passed away so i think you know it does take a, a toll on you because you you know you have to kind of look at it and go okay what is it you know what is it that we're not doing right that in this you know in this current state of the art technology that we have available what is it that we could do better to to you know to to reduce this problem to avoid it where we can and i think that's the so brain cancer and a lot of the time young individuals are affected you know so they have young families they have kids you know they have their whole life ahead of them and uh, at you know the peak of their life and so it's a massive life changing event but as a clinician you kind of at times you feel um you feel lost for words because what what do you say mm. and there's nothing that you can say that makes it better and that's and that's really really hard i know we in a previous episode spoke to Cass or Cassandra who currently has brain cancer and and she said exactly what you just said that it generally hits you when you're 30s 40 um, in the prime of your life, young kids and this absolutely hideous thing comes out of nowhere and gets you. It's just awful. What are the best advancements you've seen so far? To, to be honest with you, in glioblastoma, I haven't seen any major advancements. And that's one of the reasons why we are, uh, you know, working very hard in this area. And, and then in terms of your previous question about the toll that it takes in terms of grant writing, because we have to, you know, we, we do our clinical work, we do our, you know, day-to-day -day research, you know, all of us, we have, you know, PhD students, we have other students that we still have to be there for them. But all the grant writing at times that we do that after hours, so, and you keep writing and writing and submitting. So it, that does, in a, in a, in a, some ways you kind of think, okay, like how many more times do we need to do this? But then at the same time, we can't give up. So we have to, you know, we have to keep going and keep going. But in terms of advancements we haven't you know i haven't seen anything really to be honest in the last um at least not in the last seven years or so that have really changed the face of glioblastoma and that's why we are you know focusing i think we need to be more um more creative in in our treatment uh paradigms in terms of like the next phase of drug development and we need to come up with ways that knowledge that may have been useful for another cancer we can't use that we have to kind of use techniques and 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 medications that are totally outside of you know like outside of the box where possible even in some circumstances to be able to target this cancer you know the because it's so aggressive we have to almost we have to have something that matches the aggressive nature of this cancer oh absolutely how do you see then the field progressing in the next 5 years 
So I think, uh, I mean, from a from our local, you know, lab perspective, we are focusing on P2X7 antagonism, and we're trying to develop drugs that actually um, antagonize or block this receptor because this receptor it's basically a protein that's expressed on tumor cells, and we have a lot of preclinical um, data that suggests that if you inhibit this in patient-derived cancer. Um, uh, cultures or even patient-derived stem cells of, of 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 tumor stem cells, you can actually reduce tumor proliferation. So it's actually you know it's very very promising, and so in in the next four to five years, we hope to develop that further and and take it into a phase one human clinical trial. So that's you know that's I guess you know where we are heading. But of course you know um, me talking about our research, it's I am a bit biased. But in terms of um, in terms of you know what's happening internationally, I think one of the avenues would be um, so these uh, these particles called nanoparticles. In terms of um, delivering drugs or targeted drugs to the area where it's needed, I think that would be important because we need to target the cancer where the actual cancer is without avoiding or you know we need to avoid um, uh, targeting healthy structures or healthy cells. And so I think drug delivery I, it would be the next um, the next important phase of development. And I think also harnessing immune um, responses, so our own immune uh, system to target the cancer, that would be another avenue of treatment. But again, we have to be very clever to to harness the, the qualities of the immune system that are anti-cancer, but without causing that to cause, you know, without inducing damage to our own self proteins. So again, it's 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 a very fine fine balance. But so I think immunotherapy, drug delivery techniques would be the next phase of development for glioblastoma. Oh, that's, that's so exciting to hear. What? How has the impact of COVID affected you and the department? Um, so in terms of uh, the, from a university perspective, we were quite lucky because during the pandemic, our lab was still open. We just had to follow, you know, very strict protocols and, and you know, regulations to to still participate in our research. But from the hospital perspective, because, you know, the two major hospitals I work at, they were also COVID centers. So they were also major COVID um, hospitals. So all the, you know, hospital resources had to be restructured and um, reallocated appropriately. So there was during each of the peaks we had, we actually lost our clinical, um, you know, our physical clinic rooms. So it meant that we had to see our patients via telehealth. And um, and so that's, you know, it's not the same as seeing a person face to face and examining them. And, and I think that it definitely did affect, you know, in terms of delivering quality care, but also for patients, it was quite tricky, you know, like a lot of them had, you know, the, just the anxiety of living, having a neurological disease, living in a COVID pandemic with all these restrictions. And then at the same time, you know, being required to attend a hospital that is a COVID center, a lot, it, it did induce a degree of anxiety in our patients because how do you navigate that when you've got so much else going on? Um, so I think it was quite um, a challenge. Um, but uh, in the next two years, I think we, we, we will see you know, more of the effects of, of what had happened in the last two years. And I think, you know, it's, we just have to work extremely hard to, to navigate that. But of course, again, making sure that our patients, you know, they've been through a lot that they're our number one priority. Their clinical care is our number one priority. And then with research, we still need to continue that. But, you know, research is very important, but we still have to make sure that clinically our patients are looked after 
Do you think there were patient uh, patients presenting late um, with headaches and things like that, uh, typical brain cancer symptoms, because of the fear factor of going outside and going to a hospital or getting into a GP appointment? Um, so there's no one's looked into that specifically for, for glioblastoma itself, as, as far as I'm aware. But we know that in a number of other neurological diseases, for example, stroke, there was a significant decline in terms of rates of um, presentations to emergency department or calling an ambulance for a stroke. And we know that stroke incidents do not change. You know, it's, they're not going to vary so much um, within, you know, within a year or within two years. So it was just the fear of the individual. And uh, so a lot of people ended up, you know, they had strokes, but did not re- did not present to the hospital. So that's, you know, it's quite a it's quite a it, it is quite fear. Like it's it's a it's a concept that's you know, like we really have to kind of think about it and go, you know, we need to avoid that in the future because yes, COVID is here and it's going to be here, but so are all these other conditions. So are, you know, people will have stroke, people will have multiple sclerosis, people will have brain cancer, but how do we make sure that we still, that their care is not negated or their care is not compromised, but that they have the confidence or the capacity or the opportunity to still, you know, present the hospital. And sometimes, you know, even for the individuals that had a, already a diagnosis, it was hard for, you know, services like NDIS to go into their house uh, or, you know, patients were worried for, you know, a, a, a caregiver coming into their house because it was hard to tell, you know, who has COVID or who doesn't have COVID and just the anxiety of um, just, you know, like just dealing with what was in the news and, and, I think it really affected a lot of individuals. You know, it was hard for um, a lot of patients who already had, you know, significant problems to deal with. And then as an addition, they had this this COVID pandemic to navigate through. At the moment, um, the the hospital system is on the news a lot and and the stress on the hospital system. How are you and your team coping? Um, so I think with us, we just have to, I tell, you know, like with everyone where I can, we just have to take it one day at a time and, and do the best that we can. The other reason, I mean, for me, maybe I'm not the right person to ask that question because I always, you know, I always compare what we have here in Australia to another country. So I am grateful from from that avenue because we do have resources that are not available in many different places so I think but that means we, we have to use those resources the best way possible and um, so how do we make sure that happens so I think you know we just have to take it one day at a time and we have to remember our patients or our priority and um, and that we have resources but we have to be very um, creative in using those resources so so we don't compromise you know, care of one group of individuals based on this pandemic that's happening at the same time. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. You know, thank you for everything that the Aftershock is doing because, um, you know, you guys are kind of the, the bridge between the, you know, there's the, there's the clinical work, there's the research, and then there's our patient community group. And it's good to have organizations that actually enhances and improves awareness, but also functions as a, you know, kind of the, the bringer of knowledge. So, you know, to the two groups. So, you know, I think from that avenue, it's good to have you guys there to, to perpetuate that knowledge. Thank you so much, Mastura, for sharing your story with us. It really was incredible to hear how you have used your traumatic experience as a child, as a driving force for your purpose in life to help others. 
We are so grateful for your commitment to making a difference in high mortality rate cancers. Until next time, I'm Susie Neat, and this has been the Aftershock Podcast.